Okay, so we kicked off a Joy to the World sermon series. Are you ready? That happened last week. Fantastic. We're picking it up this week. So this means, as you know, if we're kicking off a series of Joy to the World, this means a series of sermons, of course, on, well, hokey sermons, right? That's what we expect when we have a series like this. Hokey sermons like Joy is a Gift, Unwrap Your Gift. Or how about this one, Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Enough. That's an actual book on Amazon. I've always wondered, haven't you always wondered where the line was between happiness and joy? Hey, honey, you know, you really do bring me happiness. You just need to work on the joy to the world series also means, of course, how-to sermons, like how to have joy like Jesus, right? Like step one, be like God. Step two, keep trying. Step three, do step one and step two repeatedly. Or how about joy beyond your circumstances, 50 easy circumstantial steps. Or this one, Joy on Demand. This is an Amazon bestseller. Joy on Demand, the art of discovering the happiness within. So a Joy to the World series obviously means beat-down sermons, right? Like, choose joy, you joyless loser. Or Daniel had joy in a lion's den. What's your excuse? And then this is my all-time favorite, joy is for the spirit-filled, the spiritually victorious, the spiritually successful, the fully devoted, the fully surrendered, the fully committed, the fully missional, doctrinal, liturgical, reverential, emotional, practical, ideological, and political. Joy to the world. Is this good news? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at Luke. 1, 5 through 25. So in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah's name actually means remembered by God, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So they both come from a priestly line. And they were both righteous before God. Now we need to stop right there. The Bible never says this. The Bible never says this about any human being. There's only one other time, and it was a long, 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 long time ago it was said about another human being named Noah. The Bible actually unflinchingly says the exact opposite. Like in the Psalms and Isaiah and Romans, there's no one righteous. No, not even one. Everyone's a corpse sealed in a tomb. This is stunning words. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, each division had a thousand priests. There were 24 divisions, so there are 24,000 priests. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. So a thousand people would take a lot. You draw the lucky straw, you're in. You get that once in a lifetime, that's it, and then you're done. To enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That's the honor. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. The actual word is sheer terror. This is a panic attack on steroids. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now, this is not a divine prohibition on Balcones or Shiner or Tito's. This is pointing to a vow in the past for a mission for God called Nazarite vow, and the priesthood regulations in the present for a mission from God. This is all pointing to this is someone who's on a mission from God, the ultimate true blues brother. You ready? And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And here comes the mission. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will be go before him. And that's the question. Who's him? Who is this person he'll go before? And the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, here's his response. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So we're going to do just a brief time out right here. Enter into the world of the text. You ready? Who is Gabriel? He's one of only two angels named in all the Bible. The other one is legendary. What's his name? Michael. And so you have Gabriel, Michael, and there are these other two, but they're unnamed angels. They make up this special group of angels that really smart people call the archangels. And what are archangels? You need to be thinking archangels are like God's praetorian guard. They're his special bodyguard, not because he needs protection, but because they go on special missions directly from his right hand. Go, go, go. And they're off. This is why Gabriel's name makes sense. You know what his name means? God's mighty warrior. So what do archangels do? We already said special missions from God. At major turning points, in the divine plan, the redemptive plan. In fact, years before this mission, he was sent to a guy named Daniel. And Gabriel's going to be sent again on another mission to another woman to tell her about another baby in the next chapter. So what's Gabriel's special mission here in this text, though? What is his special mission? In the book of First Enoch, in the Pseudepigrapha, it's a collection of contemporary writings that were done in the Old Testament time. It would be like, okay, you're reading Keller's book. It's a contemporary writing in our day. It's a devotional Christian book, the Pseudepigrapha, in that day called First Enoch. It says Gabriel's special missions circle around three things. First, paradise, the kingdom of God. Second, the cherubim. He's a leader of these angels. Third, the dragons. That sounds like something out of The Hobbit. I don't, do you know what that is? In Daniel, though, we get an, we get an example he says this, I came to you because of your words, Daniel, but there was a prince of the kingdom of Persia who, who delayed me for 21 days. But Michael came to help me, and so I overcame the prince. So I'm here. The dragon. Here's the point. Whenever Gabriel shows up, something big is happening. Let's continue with the text. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay in the temple. Of course they were, because they tie a rope around the leg of the dude that goes in there, because they sometimes don't make it out. And they have to pull him out. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, my shame among the people. And I wish you'd preach a whole sermon on that. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would have eyes to see, we'd have ears to hear, so that the words would speak blessing to our soul and raise us from the dead. Pray this in your name. Amen. So, here we go. Joy to the world. Is this good news? Is this good news? There are two controlling emotions in Luke's story of Christmas. Colin and I were talking about this on Thursday. There are two dominating emotions, two controlling emotions in chapters 1 and 2 in the whole Christmas event. So I want you to get this. There's only two. That's it. That's it. Do you see them? You got fear and you got joy. So the human condition in Luke 1 and 2 is not very complicated. Fear and joy. Fear, joy. Fear, joy. So what's going on in the mental and emotional lives of King Herod? What's going on in the mental and emotional lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth? What's going on in the mental and emotional lives of the 24,000 priests or the hundreds of thousands of worshipers in Jerusalem? The answer from this text is fear. But wait a minute, they're having relationships and they're working and going about their work and just below the surface of their life, the dominating, controlling, driving, motivating reality of who they are is fear. So what's driving the romance of Mary and Joseph, this young relationship that's in the exciting, the exciting place of engagement? What's driving Zachariah and Elizabeth's romantic relationship, this, this older marriage that's been their maturing marriage for years and years and years? The answer from this text, what drives their relationship is fear. So what's the cultural temperature of the urban areas in the ancient world? You know, where Mary and Joseph lived, or in the rural areas in the ancient world where Zechariah and Elizabeth live and some shepherds live, or in the power centers of the world, like where the superpower of the day lives and where King Herod lives. What is the cultural temperature? The answer from this text is fear. You're not as complicated as you think. Your husband is not as complicated as you think. Your child is not as complicated as you think. The jerk that sits next to you in home, run, home room 
is not as complicated as you think. Our culture is not as complicated as we think. Fear and joy, that's it. Joy to the world. Is this good news? In the days of Herod, verse 5, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah. This is a famous family in Aaron's lineage. In other words, Zechariah did pretty good. He, he's from the right family. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, so he actually he married right. He's doing well so far. And her name was Elizabeth, in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So they're living right. They're doing everything right. Right family, right marriage, right living. Verse 7. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Have you ever thought, have you ever felt like deep in your bones... I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And it's not enough. I've done everything I'm supposed to do in this relationship. I've done everything I'm supposed to do at work. I've done everything I'm supposed to do to have a ministry for God. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And it's never, never enough. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. Look at all the things. Look at all the everything you're supposed to do. Right family, right woman, right living. How should verse 7 read? I mean, how would you write verse 7? How does every major religion in the world write verse 7? How did the Old Testament, the spiritual fabric of the universe, write verse 7? How does the psychological impulse of every human being that has ever lived, regardless the gender, regardless the class, regardless the race, regardless the political ideology, how does every human being, their deepest psychological impulse, how would they write verse 7? When you do everything you're supposed to do, how do you write verse 7? Verse 7 should read, and they had the joy of children and lots of children, a quiver full if you were in the Old Testament. Why? Verse 7 would continue because Elizabeth was a flourishing human being. She was a full and filling wife. She had a full and filling life. Why? The text would continue, right? Because they did everything they were supposed to do. But verse 7 says, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. What is fear? Answer, fear is the emotion of barrenness. Fear is the emotion of emptiness. Fear is the emotion of nothingness. So, of course, you're afraid in the dark. Because you know what the dark does? It pokes at your barrenness. 
Of course fear sabotages your relationships. Why? Because fear, what relationships do is they, they reveal the fear, they reveal the barrenness that's already there. So of course Christians and churches and the culture runs on the fuel of fear. We're barren. Fear is what barrenness does. Joy to the world. Is this good news? Verse 8, now while he was serving as priest before God, his division was on duty. So according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. So he enters the temple of the Lord to burn incest. What you need to know about the temple of the Lord, you need to think of concentric circles of holiness. So the closer you move in, the higher the potency of holiness. So by the time you get to the center, you're at the highest potency of holiness. And where he's going is he's going to the room just before the highest potency. He goes to a room called the holy place. The next place is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And there's only a curtain. On the other side of the curtain is God. The holy of holies is the epicenter of the universe. God is localizing his presence on earth. And you get one shot as a priest to make that journey in there with a rope tied around your leg. While he's in there burning the incense, there appears to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar. The angel's not standing on his right side. The angel's standing on the right side of the altar, which means the angel is standing at the right hand of God. And Zechariah was troubled. Oh, yeah. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? I read that for the first time. I'm like, what prayer? I didn't hear a prayer. And why his prayer? What about the prayer of everybody else out there? And your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. What is happening here? What is happening here? I mean, is it all the things we just mentioned earlier? Is this choose joy because happiness isn't enough? Is that what's happening is here? Is how to have joy like Jesus? Is that happening here? Is joy on demand, the art of discovering the happiness within? Is that happening here? Or how about choose joy, you joyless loser? Is that happening here? Or joy is only for the spiritual. Joy is only for the spiritually victorious, only for the spirit-filled. Is that happening here? No. What's happening here? What's happening here is grace. God sees the barren grace. God hears the barren grace. God has mercy on the barren grace. God sends one of his greatest warriors to the barren to proclaim grace. In other words, God is saying through this angel, this Gabriel, saying to Zechariah, no more barrenness. No more emptiness for you. 
No more nothingness for your wife. Let there be life. Let there be flourishing, Zechariah. Let there be joy. And what happened? And there was. And there is. So grace is why Gabriel names John, John. I mean, look, you shall call his name John. You know what John means? God is grace. So this is who God is. You're getting John. Here's who you are. You're barren, and I'm giving you a son, and his name is God is grace. So if you ever go through your life and you look at your son, you know who God really is. You can always look at your son as he's growing up. God is grace. You can always look at him no matter what he's doing. God is grace. Because if you ever doubt who I am, God is saying to Zechariah, I am grace. He didn't name him, your dreams will come true, son. He didn't name him, try harder, son. He didn't name him, it only takes a spark, son. John, I am the God. So don't miss the order. You shall call his name John, God is grace, and here's the result, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So what is joy? Here we go. We know what, we know what the emotion of barrenness is, fear. What's the emotion here? Joy. Where does joy come from? Joy is the emotion of grace. This means joy is good news. Joy to the world, is it good news? You bet it's good news because joy is the emotion of grace. Wherever grace goes, it produces joy. Wherever grace lands, it produces joy. Wherever grace goes in a heart, it produces joy. Whenever grace goes into a relationship, it produces joy. Whenever grace enters your work, it produces joy. Whenever grace hits a culture, it produces joy. Whenever grace hits a church, it produces joy. Whenever grace hits reverence, it produces joy. Whenever grace hits repentance, it produces joy. So what does this emotion of, of joy, this emotion of grace, joy, mean for you and me? So like practically, functionally, let's get down to some brass tacks here. If we were to say, okay, uh, joy to the world is good news, and joy is the emotion of grace. Fantastic, Jeff. Great thought. Woo! That's nice. And you leave. How does it make a practical difference in your life? Here's, I got three things, ready? From the text, so I'm not just making these things up. First, my deepest mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual, whatever you wanna call it, mine and yours, problems. So think about your mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual. Those all mean the same thing in the Bible. They're just words that we use to communicate out here. But what is your deepest spiritual, mental, emotional, psychological need? I want you to think about your child's deepest mental, emotional, psychological problems and needs. I want you to think about your sisters and your parents and your professors and the jerk at work. And I want you to think about the churches, redeemers and other churches. And I want you to think about the culture's deepest psychological, spiritual, mental, emotional problems and need. 
And I want you to think about all your relationships and all the spiritual, mental, emotional needs and problems that go on there. You got them? It's not happening because of a lack of joy. They're happening because of a lack of grace. The grace of God today is an unknown cure for you, for your child, for your relationships, for your church, and for the culture. So take the unknown cure. I was going to say something like grace is a vaccine. I thought that's probably not going to be very good. Know the room, Jeff. Know the room. Yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. Look at what Gabriel says the grace of God does practically. So Gabriel says, hey, this is what the grace of God's going to do to you, Zechariah, and to all who listen to whatever John is going to say. So when John, the grace of God, goes and he starts talking about the grace of God, here are the things that are going to happen to people. You ready? Verse 16 says, grace turns you to God. In other words, it changes your heart towards God. This is very, very important. The emphasis here is not on God turning to you. The emphasis is on you turning to God. So in other words, grace changes your heart towards God. So do you have a cold heart? What's the answer? You need grace. Do you have a stubborn heart, like a, a sinfully indulging heart and an addicted heart, and you can't get out of it? The answer is you need grace. Do you have a doubting heart, a disbelieving heart, a heart that just can't grasp who God is and what he's like and you don't know what to do, what do you need? Grace. In other words, this text is actually saying practically, spiritually to all of us right now, who bears the burden of getting you better? You or grace? The second thing that happens in verse 16, well, it's actually in verse 17, is that grace changes our lives and relationships. And he gives the example of fathers to children and this one's been misinterpreted many, many times. He gives the examples of how people define and categorize themselves. There's not a lot of that going on today. The categorizations in that day that were like defining you and putting you were in bad people groups and good people groups, like people that were wise and just and people that were disobedient. That's how they did it back then. And what this is saying is that grace actually changes that whole thing. It actually changes your way of defining people. It changes your way of categorizing people. Instead, it says, all people need grace. What does joy is the emotion of grace mean practically for you and me? That was the first thing. Here's the second thing. Second thing it means is ask for it. Ask for grace. I mean, seriously, do you ask for grace? Do you ask for grace in your marriage? Do you ask for grace in that area of your life? Do you ask for grace in your church? Do you ask for grace to make us generous? Do you ask for grace to advance the gospel? Do you ask for grace to reach your child? Do I? Well, practically, this Wednesday we are as a church. So let's all do it together as a team, as friends. 
The altar of incense is a square box. So now we're in the, you know, we're in that holy place, right? So you're in the concentric circles of holiness. That's why you start with these little weird cleansing laws. Like, what is all that stuff? Well, out here, it means you got to wash your hands. But in here, it means don't look. Every time you start moving, the potency, the concentrations of holiness get thicker and greater. And so now you're at the place, a curtain, and you're in it. And there's a curtain, and you're in this place, and this is where they burn incense. On, on the other side of the curtain is God. They're burning incense. There's this box. It's 20 inches by length. It's 40 inches high. It's covered with gold, and it's filled with a gallon of incense that burns. So when you walk in, it's sweet-smelling or whatever the scent is, and smokes everywhere so you don't see God. Because you can't see God and live. And it's located in that holy place, I told you. And so here's the question. Why, is, why does Zechariah, why is he burning incense in the first place? What's going on here? What is, it, what is this thing? What is that? And why does, why does Gabriel show up there? And why does Gabriel show up at the same time, at the same place to Daniel hundreds of years earlier? At the same moment? of the sacrifice? The answer is because the burning of incense is prayer. But it's not just any kind of prayer. It's this kind of prayer. Oh, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. This is why verse 10 says, and the whole multitude of people were outside praying at the hour of incense. Because inside he's saying, oh God, we need you. And outside, hundreds and thousands of people, oh God. We need you. Oh, Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. And that's why when Gabriel visits Daniel hundreds of years before, he says this, I came at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, and I've come to tell you, you are greatly loved. Don't you want that? You're greatly loved. Grace, here's the thing about grace. This is why it comes to prayer. Because prayer fundamentally, at its essence, is need. Prayer at its essence is downhill. And grace runs downhill. Grace runs to the barren. Grace runs to the empty. Grace runs to nothingness. So are you barren? Are you nothing? Are you empty? You qualify. 
What does joy is the emotion of grace mean practically for you and me? That's number two. Here's the last one. Third, it means the primary emotion of Christianity is joy. Because Christianity is grace. It's about the grace of God. It's about what God does, not what you do. It's about what he performs, not what you perform. It's about what he accomplishes, not what you accomplish. It's about his effort, not your effort. It's about him bearing your burdens, not you bearing your burdens. It's about him dealing with your sin, not you dealing with your sin. It's about him taking care of your righteousness, not you trying to find one. It's about him cleaning you up and changing you and healing you and putting you back together, not you self-healing. This is Christianity. It's the grace of God. So if anyone is trying to give you a Christianity that is not the grace of God, then it's called good advice and it's not real Christianity. And that's why there's no joy over there. Because wherever grace goes, joy goes. Wherever grace moves, joy moves. So here's some implications. Is there confession of sin? Is there repentance? Is there hard work of life change? You bet there is. But it's confession with grace, therefore with joy. It's, conf it's repentance with grace, therefore with joy. It's hard work of life change with grace, therefore with joy. Is there lament in life? You bet there is. But, but it's lament with grace, therefore with joy. When people talk to me about reverence, you got to define that. There's no such thing as reverence without joy. That would mean there's reverence without grace. And if there's reverence without grace, it's not real Christianity. So I have this tattoo. By the way, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd have a whole sleeve. So, you think this is bad. I don't have a tattoo because I want to be an edgy pastor, a cool pastor, or whatever. I don't need that. I already am cool. <laughs> I have them because I like them. And I have them because God, over the years, has enabled me finally to be comfortable in my own skin so I can be me. And those of you who know me, I do things that probably other pastors don't do. Oh, well. So, like I said, I have this tattoo. It's of a warrior, it's of a Spartan, and he has a scar across his face. Why do I have it? I've done ministry now for 30 plus years. If you include my years in campus ministry when I was a student, which is three years. You know what I know about this life in 30 plus years of ministry? Life is war. But please hear me. It's war with grace. And therefore, with joy. And that's the fuel we run on. Grace producing joy. Grace producing joy. Joy to the world. Is this good news? So Elizabeth is five months pregnant with John. God is grace. 
Hey, God is grace. Hey. Hey, God is grace. Go pick up your clothes. She goes to visit Mary. And if Mary is some sort of relative, it could be a, a Mary could be her aunt, or not her aunt, because she's older, probably her niece or a cousin. So Gabriel visits her too after Zechariah. Gabriel visits Mary, she tells her, you're going to bear her son, yada, yada. We'll do that next week. So Elizabeth visits Mary, walks into her house, greets Mary. Hey, Mary. Hey, Elizabeth. All of a sudden, John jumps for joy in Elizabeth's womb, right? John, God is grace, jumps for joy. This is what it says. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Did you catch the order? Because the language is very intentional. Elizabeth walks into the house and greets Mary first. Nothing. Then it says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you see it? Did you just hear that? This is phenomenal. It's as if Jesus greets them. And when he does, the baby jumps. Joy. And when he does, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to get filled with the Holy Spirit? Go to Jesus. Christmas, Christianity, is Jesus greets you. There you are. I've been looking for you. It's time to come home. Jesus greets the barren. Jesus greets the empty. Jesus greets those of you that feel you're a nothing and you are nothing and you do nothing. You know what? Jesus greets you. There you are. I finally found you. It's time to come home. You're barren because of your sin, you're empty because of your suffering. You're barren because of your relationships are a wreck. There you are. It's time to come home. No more barrenness because he's your barrenness. Let there be new life because he's your life. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Amen.